Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 1135 of the Juice Box Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Cold Wind. Today, we're going to be speaking with a person we're calling Kat. Kat is a nurse practitioner in an adult endo's office, and she also trains people in nursing. Today, we talk about type 2, GLPs, type 1, and in the end of the episode, we go over what you might expect in an ER if you have type 1 diabetes. Uh, hint, it's you shouldn't expect much. While you're listening today, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. The Cold Wind series is looking for more guests. Do you work in healthcare? Does your job let you see what's happening in healthcare? Do you want to tell us all about it while you're staying anonymous? Go to juiceboxpodcast.com and send me an email and we'll start to talk and see if we can't get your chilling story on cold wind. A huge thanks to Omnipod, not just my longest sponsor, but my first one. Omnipod.com slash juicebox. If you love the podcast and you love tubeless insulin pumps, this link is for you. Omnipod.com slash juicebox. This show is sponsored today by the glucagon that my daughter carries, Gvoke Hypopen. Find out more at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juicebox. Hello and welcome to the Cold Wind series from the Juicebox podcast. These episodes will feature physicians, nurses, and other professionals who agreed to come on the show anonymously to share what they see in the healthcare profession. I've altered the voices of each guest so that they can remain anonymous and feel comfortable telling us what really goes on at their job. Just listen to how well the voice altering works. My name is Beth, and my oldest child has type 1 diabetes diagnosed in October 2020. My name is Beth, and my oldest child has type 1 diabetes diagnosed in October 2020. If you work in healthcare and have a chilling story to tell about your experiences in the healthcare field, contact me today. I'll get you right on the show. Your story does not need to be specific to diabetes. So today we're speaking with someone anonymously, and uh, before this person introduces themselves, they get to pick their own anonymous name. So. Go ahead. What do you want to be called? Okay, I'm going to go with Cat. Cat? Cat. K-A-T. Cat. As unreasonable as it sounds, I was going to say, do you prefer that with a C or a K? <laughs> All right. Actually, do it. I'll do it with a K. Okay. We're doing it with a K. Cat. Yes. Cat with a K. Yeah. Cat, tell me what you do for a living. I am a nurse practitioner. I work at a hospital system, one hospital system. Uh, full-time as a nurse practitioner in endocrinology practice. And then for my side hustle, I go to a different hospital system in a different in a different role as a nursing instructor. Okay. Oh, well, that's interesting. All right. So you're an, a, an NP for an endo, for an adult endo or? Adult, adult endo. Adult, okay. How long have you been doing that? 10 years. Do you have any personal uh, attachment to diabetes? Do you have it or know somebody who does? I do not have diabetes. I do not have type 1 diabetes. Okay. 
a hundred percent of my patients in my practice have uh, diabetes in endocrine. It's kind of typical for nurse practitioners in an endocrine practice to focus on diabetes. Okay. I've been a nurse for uh, nurse for thirty years, nurse practitioner for ten, and fell in love with uh, diabetes. When someone said, "Hey, we're starting a diabetes program," what do you know about diabetes? I said, "Absolutely nothing." I worked in ICU for twenty years, so I learned from the ground up. Mm-hmm. How long ago was that? About twenty about twenty years into your career, I guess. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, does the practice do mostly type one or type two? Mostly type two. Type two. Okay. And the practice does other endocrine things, but you're specific to the diabetes side. Yeah, I like to say endocrinologists do all the the fun stuff, the thyroid, parathyroid, thyroid, the cancers, uh, you know, everything else endocrinology related. Right, right. Just vaguely, what's the percentage split type twos to type ones that you see? Probably 85, 15. Okay, cool. All right. So let's start with my question about type twos. What's the biggest roadblock for you in helping people with type two diabetes? Well, I work, I I do two. I, I'm fortunate in my early career in diabetes was in a, in a clinic. And when I say, I know people use the word clinic two different ways. When I say clinic, I mean, uninsured, not documenting, meaning people who will never have a chance to have insurance. So I, I was dealing with a lot of you know, no access to healthcare. Well, we were the access to healthcare in a truly clinic setting. They had no money. Um, a lot of, you know, it's kind of a buzzword now, but social determinants of health or social drivers of health where they truly didn't know where their next meal was coming from, didn't have stable housing. Uh, English was not their first language. So I am I am so truly blessed that I worked in an inner city place and I still do. So that, you know, type two diabetes along with access to medications was because I had, I could use metformin and, you know, sulfonylureas and, you know, Walmart from insulin, uh, insulin from Walmart for about three years of my career. And then I go into a private practice where about 35% of my patients have Medicaid, which, you know, I love Medicaid, giving Medicaid, you have no co-pays. So I know you can afford your medicine and you come to see me for free. It just, the barrier would be transportation, but now we do you know, Zoom calls. So mm-hmm. a lot of that barrier has been taken away. But you do have some access to food issues and health issues and uh, housing issues I still deal with. But now I have, you know, the other 70% of my population who, um, you know, have commercial insurance, which we all know copays suck. But I always say those are the people who coupons are made for. So please go online and get coupons for your medication. So the barriers to type 2 diabetes are kind of, depending on which population I think of, if I think of my uh, truly, you know, office patients has more to do with, uh, I'm not getting around the bush. I'm trying to say, no, this no, you're doing, you're doing a good directly. job. Yeah, no, but the- uh, I just, you know, it's, it's what we eat. And, um, a lot of the patients and, you know, including myself, you know, dealing with depression and things like that, who gain weight. We, I, I just think, you know, when I talk to someone, it's never, not never, a lot of the times. And yes, I know we have stressors in our life and we don't make eating a priority and exercising priority. And I still say it's 80, 20, 80% weight, 80, 20% exercise. When someone says, and I see people every three, four months and I see, and you have to change something. You can't do the same thing and expect to see a change. Okay. Um, so I think 
we we tell like I hear a lot that we're we made a change, but you know when you really get deep down to it, they didn't. And again, I'm just doing a little self reflecting here myself. <laughs> That's um, okay. When I think of people, but I didn't put people on Magovi or Zempic or Manjaro in the new Zepbound that's coming out next week or in two weeks, whenever. Um, they're not magic bullets. Uh, yes, they do help, uh, but you really see people get results when they make the lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. So I think if you're really honest with yourself, we we aren't doing what we say we're doing. A lot of times we're not doing what we say we're doing and we have the best intentions. So would would you say that the biggest, so there's two populations that you've dealt with professionally. There are people who are, don't even, like you said, have a place to live. They have a, they have a completely different roadblock. Right. Right. But in right. a, and I still, yeah, yeah, but in a professional, I still see those patients. Yeah. 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 And, but in a professional setting where people are insured and come in, you know, they're almost trying to be proactive or they've been sent there by their general practitioner for a problem. You think the biggest problem that you see is follow through is that you, you give people information and they go home and don't do it. Yeah, 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 and, and I'm not laying blame because because I, I I know you know there's so much more than their life than diabetes and with everything else that goes on with life uh, and it's and I, I might be, okay I guess I can't call it the biggest barrier I'll just say one of the barriers it's a barrier I, right well we'll find the rest yeah, of them but let's barrier. follow let's go through that thought a little more though so they go home with marching orders of some kind, but they're probably immediately met with the fact that their house is full of food that might not be beneficial to them or their lifestyle is set up in a way where they they can't, they don't have time to get moving or they don't even know how to exercise or how to begin to exercise or maybe they're already infirm some way and it makes it feel difficult. The first time you get a pain, you go, oh, well, I'll wait for this to stop hurting my knee before I keep going, but you know, like that sort of stuff. So the food that's there, I'll tell you right now, I think the, the first thing that happens to people is they get home and they're like, look, I already paid for this food. I'm not throwing yeah, all this. I, I ain't throwing all this out. So let me eat through all this. And then next month I'll start. Except you go to the grocery store and you don't buy things differently. You don't suddenly go, oh, I'll have a carrot. And, you know, like you, you know, you're like, oh, I, I love I love Doritos. And so like that's the problem is the shift. Plus, the bigger problem might be that the processed foods and the really kind of like high carb, high sugar foods, I think they have a, a hold on people, you know? Oh, uh, yeah. 120% agree right. with that. Right. They are super addicting. Absolutely. They, they do. They, they truly, truly do. No, it's fantastic. My, my wife bought these little candies last year, right? And she can eat them like once every like blue moon. But if mm-hmm. I see them and have one, I'm like, oh, oh I'm going to have three of those. And I don't even think it. Yeah. I just reach in and I take three. I'm like, these are tasty. And then I'll have three today and then three tomorrow. And then the next day I'll be like, oh, I might have six of those. Like I'll have three in the morning and three in the evening. And I don't think about it. It's just it's in a, like what she sees is a decorative jar that she might take four years to go through. And I'm like, if you leave that where I can see it, I guarantee I'm going to eat all of those in a month. And it's funny. Yeah. And I and. I, I'm the same way. It, it just can't be in the house. I struggle with telling someone, oh, in moderation versus nothing at all. Because um, then people say, oh, I'm going to just crave it and go get it. And, uh, you know, you hear, I guess, my my own practice, I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm not sure what way works the best. 
you know, totally eliminate from your diet and just have it as a treat. Or some people say, um, I have one dietitian who I love. Um, she says, get a, um, a shot glass and put your chocolate chips in there. And that, that's your treat for the night. So you're not depriving yourself. Mm. So yeah, I get it. People are, are one way or the other there. And I find that there's, there's little gray on that with people. I, I know myself, uh-uh, it, I can't do the moderation thing. It's got to be out of sight. So yeah. So for yeah. the people you meet, you feel like they, they lean one way or the other, either I just throw it all away, set it on fire, get it away from me. Or, you know, I can do moderation, but, but some people can. Yeah. 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 And every, and I, I truly, you're funny. I, okay. No, I guess I can't say that. Why can't you say that? Nobody knows who so you this are. Is, you, okay. No. So this is not the first time you and I met. Right. And you, you, you actually said to me when I said I'm a nurse practitioner who practices, you know, and blah, blah, blah. You said, are you good at what you do? Do you remember saying that? I don't know. Me? I'm 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 always making a podcast, even if we're by ourselves. I was probably just asking <laughs> questions. I'm like, oh, you're like, are you good at what you do? So you, and, so um, we met in person somewhere, and we met in person somewhere, right? And you identified yourself, and I said, "Are you good at?" Is that what I said? I'm an asshole, aren't I? That's terrible. <laughs> you did, and I said it. I said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm a- absolutely." I said, "I'm very good at what I do," and you can judge that by you know different avenues, you know. But one of the ways that the organization where I work dredges that is those patient comments that, you know, you're, you're graded by those and press Ganey scores and, you know, you get rated by your patients. So I, you know, we get a lot of patient feedback, you know, the patient, I, I, you know, you get, when you leave the doctor, you get a survey, you can fill out the five stars, but then there are those people that take it a little bit further and they actually write comments. Mm -hmm. So what's consistent about the comments that I get is that I listen and I, I make sure that they participate in their care and I explain things. They know the, they know the why behind what they do and you know, basically like that. So I, I, I do pride myself on that. Like I don't just say I'm, you're going on with Govi and this is why, you know, I make sure they understand how Ruby works or why the SGLC2, you know, why I recommend to protect your heart and your kidneys. Oh, by the way, it helps with diabetes too. Yeah. So like a full explanation. So it's not just take, take this. Yeah. Yeah. They, they get to know why they're doing what they're doing, how they're going to do it and what the expectation is from it. Today's episode of the juice box podcast is sponsored by Omnipod. And before I tell you about Omnipod, the device, I'd like to tell you about Omnipod the company. I approached Omnipod in 2015 and asked them to buy an ad on a podcast that I hadn't even begun to make yet. Because the podcast didn't have any listeners, all I could promise them was that I was going to try to help people living with type 1 diabetes. And that was enough for Omnipod. They bought their first ad. And I used that money to support myself while I was growing the Juicebox podcast. You might even say that Omnipod is the firm foundation of the Juicebox podcast. And it's actually the firm foundation of how my daughter manages her type 1 diabetes every day. Omnipod.com slash Juicebox. Whether you want the Omnipod 5 or the Omnipod Dash, using my link lets Omnipod know what a good decision they made in 2015 and continue to make to this day. Omnipod is easy to use, easy to fill, easy to wear, And I know that because my daughter has been wearing one every day since she was four years old, and she will be 20 this year. 
there is not enough time in an ad for me to tell you everything that I know about Omnipod, but please take a look. Omnipod.com slash juicebox. I think Omnipod could be a good friend to you, just like it has been to my daughter and my family. If you take insulin or sulfonylureas, you are at risk for your blood sugar going too low. You need a safety net when it matters most. Be ready with Gvoke Hypopen. My daughter carries Gvoke Hypopen everywhere she goes because it's a ready-to-use rescue pen for treating very low blood sugar in people with diabetes ages 2 and above that I trust. Low blood sugar emergencies can happen unexpectedly, and they demand quick action. Luckily, Gvoke Hypopen can be administered in two simple steps, even by yourself in certain situations. Show those around you where you store Gvoke Hypopen and how to use it. They need to know how to use Gvoke Hypopen before an emergency situation happens. Learn more about why Gvoke Hypopen is in Arden's Diabetes Toolkit at gvokeglucagon.com slash juicebox. Gvoke shouldn't be used if you have a tumor in the gland on the top of your kidneys called a pheochromocytoma, or if you have a tumor in your pancreas called an insulinoma. Visit gvokeglucagon.com slash risk for safety information. I do. Yeah. Or they'll come to me, their primary care doctor, put them on, you know, the SGL2, SGL2s, the Jardins for Sega, the one that makes them pee after sugar, but their A1C was 10 and you have yeast infection after UTI, if yeast infection. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't have done that with the sh- you know, with your sugars in the 250s. You're, yeah, I, I can tell you why you got yeast infection. It takes me two seconds. Mm. Well, now they're like, well, I don't want to take that anymore. I'm like, fine, we'll, we'll stop it for now, but let's try something else. And then I will put you back on it later. You know, we'll talk about it. But so, yeah, getting back to that roundabout question is, yeah, I, I do try to explain, you know, things. and Right. Yeah. And listen and blah, blah, blah. So sticking with type twos a little longer here. If I, since you're going to be anonymous, you can just say what you think, okay? If if people who came in with type 2 diabetes, whether it was genetic or lifestyle or mixture, any any number of ways that they've made it to having type 2 diabetes, if you could literally control their intake and their exercise, could you help everyone? Or are there some people who even if they ate well and exercised, they'd still have type 2 diabetes? Small percentage, I would say, yes, would still have type 2 diabetes. But you think it's mostly those ideas, is movement and, yes. food, and food. Okay. Food first. Food yeah. first. And people, yeah. do you find it's true that some people think they're eating well when they're not? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So here's the best example. We check the blood sugar when they come through the door. And it'll be high. And I'll say, oh, you know, during the intake process, the nursing assistant will say, you know, when's the last time you ate? What did you eat? I had blah, blah, blah. I stopped at McDonald's on my way. And, you know, but I don't normally eat that. Well, you don't normally eat that, but you had it. You just happened to have it on the day you came to see me. I, I just find that funny. Beyond funny, beyond funny, cat, you find it a lie. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you yeah. think they're lying. Yeah. Like, like, like you, your your thought is, why would you go to McDonald's only once this year and it be the day before the the, the hour before somebody's checking your blood sugar in a medical situation? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And here's the other here's the other part. I live with a man who who takes a movie, hasn't lost any weight. And I can tell you why. <laughs> it's not the drug. <laughs> so, so okay. 
so you have personal experience with a person on WeGovi. Are they, how far into the process are they? What's their, um, what, what's the uh, dose they're getting right now? 2.4. Oh, that's I the full two. dose. They've been on it for a while. Yep. And he's eating through it. Is that your contention? Absolutely. Type of food he's eating through is, is, it's still not good. It wasn't good food before. It's still not good food now. Or is it, is it bulk of food? Both. Both. Okay. Now, I can tell you, when you met me in person, I probably had, do you remember what month that was by any chance? August. Was it really that? Okay. So I've lost 40 pounds, probably 30 of them since I saw you. March, April, Mm -hmm. May, June. Actually, that's not fair. Maybe 20 more since I've seen you. So I've lost 40 pounds on WeGovi. And... I was not a poor eater to begin with. Like I didn't take in a ton of calories, um, even though, you know, I was talking about candy, like I don't eat candy every day, all day long. My intake is pretty reasonable. I just have always maintained there's something wrong with my body. It just doesn't work well. I believe that to be true even more so after beginning to take Wegovy, because even on a non-therapeutic dose, I was losing weight. Mm. Like right away. I lost weight in the first week. On we go. Well, yeah. You know, now that I'm down 40 pounds, the weight loss is slower. I don't have a lot more to go. I don't think maybe 15, maybe 20 pounds. I don't know exactly. But it's very maintenancey. Like at this point now, fully dressed, standing in front of you, you would not go, that person needs to lose weight. I look significantly different. I think that I have a deficiency of some sort that the GLP medication is covering for. But you think there are some people who don't have that deficiency. They just have the, they eat a lot. And that medication. No, not that they don't have the deficiency. There's lots of reasons uh, why. Uh, BED, binge eating disorder, you know, there's uh, reasons why people continue to eat. But the the flip side of that is yes, so I do have patients, you know, who come in not losing weight on these medications. Um, But then I do see the people like you who are doing phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal on these medications and I just I just praise them when they come in it's just a life-changing you know it's just so life-changing for them and they change the way everyone in their house eats they're so they're making future generations healthier their their teenagers are now eating healthy and it's just amazing it's just so inspiring to see that yeah no I believe I believe what you're saying I actually think that the GLPs might change an entire generation of the country uh, and how it eats, the but, GLPs, but the, the GIPs, and now you've got Lily's coming out with the third one, the GIP GLP one, and I forget what the third hormone is going to be. Yeah, it's, yeah. that'll hey, be out but, next year. But yeah. I don't, I don't want to skip over the binge eating thing because I, I have input on this. Okay, I know what you're talking about because for me, Wegovy can make your stomach feel fuller, right? And that does that by slowing digestion, but it also tells your brain you're not hungry. Right. So like I have to remind myself to eat. But mm-hmm. when I when I remind myself, like it, this is a good example. It's 1030 in the morning. I haven't eaten yet. And I, I had a long weekend. So I decided to sleep in a little bit, get up, record the podcast and I'll eat after when I'm done talking to you. I still won't be hungry. My brain won't be hungry and my stomach won't be hungry, but I will eat because I know I need to eat. But. I could overeat if I wanted to. I could. I could absolutely make a conscious decision to eat food 
and just eat it, which is, which is fascinating because it sounds like it can sound like to the person on the outside, oh, the medication's stopping him from eating. It's telling him his brain is not hungry. It's telling his stomach he's not hungry. It's all true for me. But if I just said to you right now, I'm going to go downstairs and eat as much as I can, I could do it. I wouldn't feel good when it was over, et cetera. But if I had that psychological component of it about the eating, which really does, I think, go to prove that that somebody in that situation is not being ruled by anything except psychology in that situation. Do you agree with that? I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So there is that mm-hmm. there is a person that could be in that scenario, too. So the person, you know, they should be seeing a therapist, you think? They're not going to know it's you. So go ahead. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> Yeah, yes, yes. Um, yeah. And there's other medications. That's why, you know, people can take, you know, Wigovi and beyond fentramine. I mean, not not the fentramine treats binging disorder, violence does, but there are people who do need both. So it's not uncommon for me to prescribe uh some Wigovi and trial fentramine or other medications um that also help. Did you just say that Vyvanse helps for binge eating disorder? Yeah, it's FDA approved for that. Okay. It's also what's that? I just wanted to make sure I heard you because you you spoke kind of quickly and I wasn't certain you said that. Oh yeah, yeah. It's also it's the only uh, medication for for the one for um, ADHD. Okay, and that helps with that too. Oh, that's crazy, or can help with it, and that's something. Well, yeah. yeah so yeah. okay, so all right. So now we've we've kind of learned a lot, but we learned about one of the ideas that stops people from being helped with type two, it's not as easy as information. You can inform them, but they're not necessarily going to follow through for a number of different reasons. Could be financial, could be what they think of as good food, could be that they're being pushed by psychology, could be that they're being pushed by physiology, like all kinds of different possibilities. Yes, absolutely. And then what happens to them if they don't see gains? If they don't see improvement, it becomes... But I guess demoralizing and then they stop? Well, they say the medication doesn't work. It's, you know, that's basically, it's the medication's fault. Okay. I can tell you this. I have an incredibly long view now of my health, more so than I ever have in my entire life. My wife and I were talking about this yesterday in the car, and I said, I, I now don't care if it's a half a pound a week. Like it's fine. It, it's fine with me if I reach my goal weight two years from now, like that. Like, but in the past, without the Wegovy, because I wasn't seeing any improvement. If I didn't see like a drop in weight constantly, and it didn't seem significant, it was hard to keep going. Mm. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, I'm never going to get there. This isn't going to work. I ate one thing yesterday. I shouldn't have, and I gained two pounds. Like this is like this right. is just where I'm at. But because I'm right. seeing improvement. I can afford to be patient, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, to me, any pound, any time that, and it, you know, also there's non-scale victories, like you know, but I know I just don't only look at a scale. There's so many things wrong with the scale, but anyway, time that scale goes down, and I can show a patient, well, I saw you three months ago, or I saw you six, you know, six months ago, you've lost ten pounds since then. I'm like, that's ten pounds. Before, you know, we started, you know, talking, that scale was going up and up and up. So it is progress. It may be slow progress. I think people see, you know, I can't stand saying this, but, you know, celebrities, whoever, losing tons of weight on this. But I'm like, no, really, your scale's going in the right direction. But let's see what we can do to 
you know, make move, make the dots move a little faster. Yeah. Or, well, you, you know, know, keep it going in the right direction. Another reason not to compare yourself to somebody online is that they show you their first picture when they're when they're at one weight, and then that's not even that they're showing them. You're used to seeing them like that. Correct. The next time you see them, they've lost forty pounds. And you're like, oh my right. God, look how quickly that happened. Like it didn't happen, probably didn't happen quickly at all. Probably took them a year, but yeah. they were hiding for a year while they were they weren't taking any new pictures yeah. during that time, right? So you didn't yeah. see the process yeah. of it happening. Yeah. I started making videos online when I started doing Wegovi because after I lost the first 10 or 15 pounds, I was actually comfortable pointing the camera at myself. And then I realized that this will be a good like visual diary of over time. So I kept doing it. Because even I was like, the first time I made a video, I'm like, oh my God, I look better than I feel like I've ever looked. And then a month later, I was like, oh, I looked terrible a month ago. <laughs> like, look at me now, <laughs> you know? And so I thought, well, I'll keep doing that because then people can see the progress instead of just showing them like the finished product and being like, oh, look, because then it feels magical. And it's not magical. It's, it's, I mean, I've been doing this since March. It's November mm -hmm. now, March, April, May, right, June, yeah. July, August, September, October. It's, it's, I'm nine months into this. And there are weeks where I lose a half a pound and I just have learned to say, that's amazing. And I keep going. It's yeah, that's there. Exactly. That's mm -hmm. amazing. And that's slow. You know, it's, you know, all the cliches that you can think of. It's not a marathon. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. sprint you yeah. want that to be slow. And I just feel my, one of my favorites is when the tide rises, all boats rise. Like you feel better and just when people say, oh, you look great. And just to keep it going, keep your momentum going, for, mm -hmm. you know, to keep you motivated to, you know, to put in the effort. So I'll tell you right now, with, you know, the patients come back and they say, oh, I'm so sick on it. I, since I've been around, you know, these medications, the GLP ones have been on the market since, uh, don't quote me, 2005 with Victoza and Bayetta. Um, I remember when I first started, I'm like, yeah, let me try that. And I didn't have any way to lose. But the drug rep, it was funny, the drug rep's like, hey, you know, you want to try this? And like I said, I was new to the, new to diabetes, so I had to learn how metformin worked. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, sure, let me try the two. I threw up left and right, even on the lowest dose. Wasn't it wasn't good actually, for you, yeah. For, for the first week I tried it, I lost four pounds. I was like, oh, my God, I am not hungry. I feel great. Yeah, week two, still on the point six, I threw up. Hmm. Were you eating through it? I know that's a weird term, but were you just pushing? No, 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 no. I just, I get, I get car sick if, if I drive. So not good for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get, I say I get sick if the wind changes directions, but then like Tanzium came on the market. Then you had by Dorian. It was, I'm like, yeah, let me try Tanzium. The weakest one ever. It's not even on the market anymore. Threw up. So then I'm like, all right, let me try Lojo's Manjaro, the 2.5. People say they tolerate a lot better. And I just, people do, in my, in my uh, anecdotal evidence, people tend to tolerate low-dose Monjaro better than Ozempic. Um, so I'm like, yeah, you know, I got access to all this crap. I'm like, yeah, they try Monjaro. Threw up on it. So It's just not for you. <laughs> you yeah. To, yeah, I mean, it, well, yeah, that makes sense. None of them, none of them for me. Yeah. yeah, no, it makes sense. And look, I, um, I, I've had people ask me, like, are there side effects? And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I don't know that I've had like a, a bowel movement that I've been super excited about, you know, yeah, in a while. Yeah. But I, but here's here's my response to that I have a flippant response and a serious response. My my flippant response is uh, I don't dislike a, a loose stool uh, more than I dislike being heavy. 
So like that, that mm-hmm. to me is like, okay, if this is what this is, I also think that I have a perspective of my body is reshaping itself. And I think there's a lot of like, I, this is a very non-technical way to say this, but I think there's a lot of badness inside of me and it's coming out. And mm-hmm. I don't think that that's going to be a smooth process. Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, I'm losing a lot of fat, a lot of fat. Mm-hmm. And I don't like, and you know, if you eat a high fat, if you ate a low carb, high fat diet, you'd have loose stool. Like that would be a thing that would happen. Right. right. And so I'm expelling a lot of fat. And that makes sense to me that my body's not perfectly balanced at the moment. But so many other things that have been unbalanced are balanced. So my expectation is, is that at some point I'm going to have to get on a medication where I can vary the dose a little more. And that perhaps what I'm taking right now is maybe too much or not enough or like, I won't know, but like that I haven't found the answer yet. I also think there are likely other things unbalanced in my body that I'm unaware of. I'm also trying to look into those things as I go along. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But it's just, it's to me, it's just, it's a science experiment. It's time. You got to keep going. But then that's the problem, right? Is that I'm a person who a had access to the medication. It was paid for by my insurance. I have, Mm -hmm the access to food. I have a a job where I can actually say to myself, like, all right, well, here's how I'll eat because I don't, I'm not up at 6am and running out the door. I, you know, I don't get 30 minutes in the middle of the day to eat. Like I have, like my life is different, you know, and I think those things all impact them. And I think that those same stressors impact people trying to change their diabetes as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so I think that our lifestyles and I don't mean like around food. I mean our lifestyles, the way Americans' yeah. lives work and the food, yeah. the food that we have access to and the time that we have to prepare it. I think those are the three issues. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I've had actually, you know, patients take, you know, leave of absence from work and they come back and, you know, it was just wonderful. And, you know, I'm thinking of one of my patients type one on a pump. He's like, I, I ate. Well, I exercised. I didn't have the stress of my job, and you know, I feel amazing, and my blood work shows it. And he's mm-hmm. like, "Well, I got to go back to work now." <laughs> and you know, yeah, like it's, it's just, all over, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I was wondering if you've seen this before. We move on. Let me ask you this question. My wife had an interaction with a person who's on Ozempic or Wego. Probably Wegovy. I think it was just for weight loss. So Wegovy, right? Uh-huh. And uh-huh. this person said that they lost like all this weight over like year and a half and they were almost like down to a maintenance weight. Like they were that, that close to their goal. And they had also made changes. She said, you know, that being on yeah, the medication yeah. had ta- taught her how to eat better and like mm-hmm. kinds of foods, amounts of foods, etc. exercise. And then suddenly one day, whoom, insurance calls and says, we're not covering this for you anymore. And so the person said, well, I'm not going to panic. I am going to keep eating the way I eat, exercising the way I exercise. I'm going to keep doing the things that I've been doing, you know, all the lifestyle stuff. And she said that no lie, absolutely no lie. She started to gain weight slowly. And she's like, I did not eat anything different. I didn't do anything differently. My exercise, my intake, everything was exactly the same. And my body just started to put weight on again. And Mm -hmm. that's how I feel like I am. That's who I feel like I am in this scenario. Like this medication is doing something for me. I don't exactly know what it is, but it it is filling a gap that I have that my body can't do by itself. Mm-hmm. That's what I see happening for me. So you see that with others is what was going to be my question. 
I see it. I do. Um, one thing about these medications is you, when people say I'm on this for the rest of my life, I'm like, yeah, it's some way, shape or form, whether we lower the dose to a maintenance dose, take it every 10 days instead of every uh, seven days. Mm-hmm. Some people take it every two weeks. I had one of my coworkers who lost a significant amount of weight on Wokovi and she was happy about her weight and she just stopped it. And then lo and behold, she comes to work the other day, literally throwing up all over the place. I said, what did you do? She said, I took Wokovi. I said, how much did you take? She said, oh, my, you know, 2.4. I said, when was the last time you took it? She said, June. I said, oh, God, you can't do that. You literally have to start back over from zero yeah. if you give your body that much of a break. Poor girl. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, so you should be told, your practitioner, you know, should be telling you that these are considered lifelong medications. Even working there, she didn't know that. That you have to, because you titrate up. We go visa an example. You titrate up when you start taking, it's, it's like a quarter of a, was it 0.25 milligrams to start, right? And then, right, right. and then you, it's four weeks of that, then four weeks of 0.5, four weeks of 0.75, four weeks of one, one, two, five. Like it goes on forever. To get to 2.4 is a forever. It's yeah. like a six month, like March, really, to get to it. And so now 2.4 is the highest. I will tell you, I don't think 2.4 is enough for me because mm. I lose weight in the first four and a half days of the week. And then I, put some of it back on in day five, six, seven. Hmm. That's why I'm, so I'll, I lose three pounds every week, but my net loss is only 0.5. I'm sure there will be more clinical trials, but with higher doses, it's just, it just makes sense. Yeah. So it's just, it's all of it's incredibly interesting. But also I think it points to, first of all, I don't mind talking about the GLPs. I think it's a good conversation, but at the same time, I think that the plight of a person with a GLP deficiency, if there is one, you know, pointing mm-hmm. mine out, I don't think there it's mu- one, yeah. yeah, I don't think it's much different than a person who has type two diabetes. The struggle is my point. I think the struggle is yep. very similar. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. My gosh. So then what's it like managing a type like so this is a great example because Jenny says all the time on the podcast, like she's like, you know, most adult endos don't see many type ones. So you said maybe uh-huh. 80, 85, 15 is your, is your breakdown. So do you know a lot more about type two than you know about type one? Of course. Yeah. yeah. Are type ones in the same sort of boat as type twos, meaning that they might lack education, access and, or desire or ability to follow through? Yeah, absolutely. I just, and I, you know, <laughs> funny story, you know, the reason what it you know you put out the the uh the reason i came was to talk about what happens you come to the hospital with type 1 diabetes i have two thoughts and then i do want to go over to talking about hospital intake for type 1s do you think type 1s and type 2s at a basic level are kind of suffering with the same problems like access desire ability education that kind of stuff so yes but and I don't, I don't want this to come out wrong, but my heart actually breaks for the type ones living where I live with, uh, for many, many years, there wasn't an endocrinologist in this city. So now I have uh, people who are in their early twenties uh, who have type one diabetes and did not have good care. So the long-term complications they have the blindness the retin- you know the retinopathy and actually blindness 
and the neuropathy, the gastroparesis, and the diabetes distress, the depression, um, as which still there, it's there aren't great therapists or people who are trained to deal with diabetes distress. Um, so that just breaks my heart. So to me, it's just to a whole number to a whole nother level. Kat, do you see those things with frequency at at younger ages where you're at? All the time. Okay. Amputations oh, through the roof, through the roof. People in their twenties yeah. who are bl- who are blinded by their type one. Yes, and this is because yeah. they so they have insulin. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. They don't know how to use it. No, they don't know how to use it. No, I've had you know someone diagnosed at age five and just doesn't know the basics of diabetes. You know, basically hanging on by thread. That they don't, they aren't in DKA because they'll take they'll they'll take their basal insulin, but they haven't taken Humalog in a long time, or they'll take it once every three four days, you know. So hmm. just you know, we, we the area we live in in between Philly and New York, yes, there's children's trough in Philly and New Brunswick and hospitals all over, but you know, not having the parental support they may need, not just. It's, it was rough growing up in you know in the city and not having an endocrinologist, not having someone to go to, but yeah. Yeah. So in that setting, the the setting that you're that you're local to, there's not a lot of parental support, which leads to people growing up not knowing what they're doing, which leads to a really uh, advanced diabetes complications early in life. Yes. Yeah. And absolutely. How do you if I gave you a magic wand and said Go ahead and help these people. What do you think would help them? Now that they're in their 20s and they have all these problems, I know they're in a different situation. But what would have stopped them from being in this situation should have been my question. Well, I mean, it goes back to all the social determinants of health, you know, with uh, the food, you know, access to food. Just the education piece not being local and not being able to follow up. Um, And again, you know, the technology is so much better now. Um, But just not having just not knowing how important it is to know what your blood sugar is um, or they just don't know the complications of diabetes. Erectile dysfunction in someone who's 26 years old, you know, is something I see. So I talk about erectile dysfunction all day long, basically. You're trying, to scare, them. You're trying to scare them into thinking if I take care of myself, I can keep having sex. Sure. sure. Yeah. That makes sense to me, but okay. Yeah. At, at this point, they're, they're going to urologist at age 26, but anyway, it's just the complications. Let's think deeper. I get what stops them, right? I get their problems. I know I heard what their problems are. I understand what they are. Let's say they still have those problems. Is there a way to help them? Like, because you can't fix their problems, right? You can't pull them out of poverty. You can't give them a, a, you can't give them a smarter brain. You can't give them a parent that cares about them. You can't give them all those things. You're, You're talking around some stuff, but I hear what you're saying. Like, so you can't do those things for those people. Are they lost causes or is there something we could do for them? Like, is there something they could be told? Is there something they could be shown that would like, all right, yeah, they're going to go to McDonald's before they go to the doctor. We can't stop them from doing that. But could we teach them how to bolus for the McDonald's? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what I was just going to get at. The CGMs, the, you know, knowing what their shares are. No, I just think, yes, I work with a team of people. I work with wonderful diabetes educators. We do have tons of resources in our office. I, I love where I work. Um, I love what we do. 
just the education. And once you, I, you know, once they're engaged, they come. And once they see progress, you know, it they're excited. So yeah, I I don't think there are a lot, a lot of more lost cause. I just I'm just so I just love the fact that that part of my job where I get to help. And if they take one thing away from an appointment, hey, you're on a pump now. You know, I have a girl I saw the other day. She's diagnosed at age five. She's never been on a pump. She had no idea what one was. She didn't even know what a pump was, how they worked. Mm-hmm. And she's been on one for a couple months now. And I just pulled up her CGM and her pump report. I'm like, look, look what happens when you bowls before you eat. She's like, wow, I didn't have spikes. And she hasn't had blood sugar in the 400s. You know, she may peak to 250, but that's right. pretty freaking amazing yeah. when you lived in the 400s. Exactly. You know, a couple yeah. months ago. 250 is not yeah. great, but you're not going to be blind when you're 26 when a 250 either. Like, so you now maybe it buys them more time to have an epiphany or to mature or to meet another person that could help them with their, like the, it, it buys you time to, to do better. Well, it changed her life because her stomach, her gastroparesis, like she couldn't eat. She spent the first, you know, six hours she was awake trying not to throw up. But now that her blood sugars are coming down and it's much more steady, her stomach feels better. Mm-hmm. So she sees it. It's that instant gratification, not instant, instant, but you know, she feels it now. Um, already she feels better. Can I ask you a question? And this was not my intention when you came on, but is there a world where the hospital you work at would let me come give a talk to people in that situation to help them understand how to use insulin? Or would they never let a person in who doesn't have uh, credentials? No, I think they're open to it. I think they would be. Do you think that would help? Like if we just did that like high level, this is insulin, this is how it works thing. Here's why it's important. Like give them an hour and a half of like, and then let them ask questions and then send them back on their way. Is that, is that if, because there's a part of me inside that thinks that the podcast is, is successful about management stuff because it is very clear about when and how to use insulin and, and, and why changes need to be made sometimes depending on food. I'm saying this thing. I think one, if you're going to be amazed by how the podcast helps people, it's that I'm not having a two-way conversation with the people who are listening. So I'm able to like yeah. dispense the information in a way that they can pick and choose from and help themselves without being able to re-ask a question and without me knowing their specific situation. And I think that having figured out a way to do that, maybe that would translate to people who are in the situation that you've spoken about. Like maybe does that make sense? I don't know if that made sense or not. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I'm I'm also not. I don't know. I'm sure that I'm sure you could do it. I'm sure there are plenty of people that could do it. But I think that what they might need is for someone to like instead of doing an a uh, you know an appointment. If you if you did a large group collection of people, if you just if you just said, look, like you know, come out on Saturday at one o'clock. You know, there's going to be this, there'll be food, like, you know, like make it enticing, like make it a thing. And, you know, while you're here, someone's going to explain, you know, pre-bolusing your meals to you or getting your carb ratio set or stuff like that. Like real simple, basic stuff that they could maybe, and then maybe have nurses and doctors there to actually help them get their settings right, like on site and stuff like that. Like, it seems to me that if you did a healthcare, like a three hour health fair like that, you could make a pretty big impact. And then maybe you could start that process that I've started here on the podcast, which is if you can get a core group of people to buy into the thing that's happening, they actually go tell other people about it because they're, right. they're super right. excited because their life has changed. And then they meet another person with diabetes and go, you know what? 
I used to have this, this, this is my problems, but I don't anymore because I learned how to do this. It wasn't that hard, you know, like that, that kind of stuff. I don't know. Like maybe I'm being Pollyanna. Maybe there are some people who are just never going to be okay. I don't know, but it, it seems. There are some people who are never going to be okay. That is, that is a, yes, that is an accurate statement. Like yeah. a, it's a harsh truth, right? You're just, you're not reaching everything. It is. Yeah. Right. Like they got a bad role and they're not going to be able to rebound from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's some people who get a bad yeah. role and they find their way through it. There's some people who like stand up immediately and say, I'm not letting this happen to me. There's different versions of responses when somebody gets diabetes, for example. And a lot of that is contingent on things that outside people can't help. Is that fair? Yeah. yeah. And it's also learned responses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Meaning they've they've grown up with the idea that their life sucks and that it's going to go poorly. Yeah. And so that when it does, they just go, okay, well, here's more of that. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. No, that's upsetting, mm-hmm. but, but I, I understand what you're saying and I appreciate you being so uh, direct about it too. Thank you. Let's take the last little bit of this time and go over this, this piece here. Right. So people type ones, I guess we should do both, right? Type ones or type twos. They come into the hospital for something emergent. They should not expect anyone to really understand their diabetes. Let's start with type 1s. They shouldn't really expect anybody to understand their, t- their type 1 diabetes in the ER. Is that right? Absolutely correct. Okay. You are giving staff members way too much credit. And I read all the posts and the comments, and no, please don't expect that. You have to be your own advocate, as a lot of people have mentioned. Mm-hmm. Do not take your pump off. You beg, plead. Stand up for yourself. Do not take your pump off unless there's an, you are in DKA or have a severe hypoglycemic event or, you know, obviously test some tests. But um, there is really very few reasons why you would need to take your pump off. That is I, when I, uh, where I work, we have a very, so the two hospitals where I work, the one hospital is very robust. We have a diabetes task force. We meet once a month. We have inpatient diabetes educators who are amazing, which you do not find that in hospitals anymore. When budget cuts happen, that is the one of the first positions that go. It's a full RN salary. You know, ask around how many hospitals have inpatient diabetes educators, and I will tell you not many. I can think of 10 hospitals in the area and where I work is the only hospital that has inpatient diabetes educators. So nurses who will who will go see you at the bedside, you have a CGM on, you have a pump on, they meet with you, they make sure everything is, you know, per our hospital policy, which means we know you're wearing it and everything's okay. Very, very few places have that. Tooting our horn a little bit further, when our nurses get oriented, our diabetes educators do in-servicing to everyone that walks through the door. We do quarterly in-services to our residents and interns. Having said all that, it's like we never did it. <laughs> I have to say the nurses have a little bit more knowledge than nurses who don't receive our in, our education, but oh, there's so much more to be done. From the time that, Scott, that you posted about this topic, I could list so many stories to doing yesterday, between that time and today, a week. Mm-hmm. You know, someone was under our care in the hospital and went into DKA. How does that happen? It happens. Someone was in the ER, came in by ambulance with a blood sugar of 600 from a doctor's office, 
seen by the doctor, but the nurse didn't get to the patient. The patient didn't feel like waiting. Went home three hours later, came came back the next morning in full-blown DKA, bipart less than five, super, super sick. Like that shit happened. Mm. Someone, uh, the patient comes in on some pump, tells the ER staff, come on, insulin pump. Okay. Um, communication gets lost. The first provider called the hospital sees the patient, documents in the chart. Insulin pump was removed. They gave the patient, you know, 30, 40 units of Lantus. I don't remember the dose. A couple hours later, they're hypoglycemic. The nurse says, oh, look, no, there's, they've got their insulin pump on. It wasn't a pump. It was a CGM. Or am I mixing up the story? But anyway, the patient got had the pump on, got a dose of Lantus, and the staff had no clue what that piece of technology was. This, this, this is in a week. This is in a week. Arden was in the ER for something not diabetes related, and she had to go back once. It was while she was at school. People are going to hear me say this a lot because it's so crazy, but I'm going to keep saying it here. So she was in the ER 12 hours one day, one day off, 12 hours the next day. And in 24 hours of care over two visits, you should guess how many times they checked her blood sugar. Just pick a number. How many think in two 12 hour visits, how many times do you think they would have checked her blood sugar? Three. Never. They never once checked her blood sugar. <gasps> oh, Jesus. Ever. They never paid attention to the fact that she had type 1 diabetes the whole time she was there. And they put her on morphine when she got there. So she was <gasps> not able to handle herself and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. didn't check on her blood sugar. Uh, trust me, they didn't know she was on an algorithm that's like fine-tuned with an inch of its life or that I was managing it remotely through one of her roommates who was in the room. They didn't know any of that. They just never checked wow. on her again. That was it. It was all just left up to chance. So, and she came in. I have type 1 diabetes. This is my insulin pump. This is my continuous glucose monitor. These are my things. You would think that that would put her on a protocol where they would check on her, but never. They never even came in and said, hey, what's that CGM say your blood sugar is? Wow. Never, ever, ever. Give those people an education, but it doesn't stick to them? No. Mm -mm. Some, so, and uh, when you get oriented to a hospital, you're bombarded with speaker after speaker after speaker presentation presentation um that's what i'm chalking it up to because the information is you know was reviewed it's it's simple it's this is this the pump this is a cgm please know what it looks like uh we're here to help call us so i'm gonna say it's gotten better but it's not great it's not great at all and again we have these resources I, I can tell you there's other hospitals that don't even address this stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we, we review every hypoglycemic event that happens in the hospital. We review every uh, DKA event. You know, we review this stuff. We talk about it. So we have root cause analysis. We have, you know, updated and improved and provided education. We know these things happen and they continue to happen. Can I ask a, a, a scary question, maybe? Because you do you do nurse education, so you're going to have the you might have the pulse on this one. Put diabetes out of the out of the picture for a second. How many other things did the nurses not understand? Just so many. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, right, many. So, so our expectations of what I, a nurse yeah. is 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 incorrect. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And then when you yeah. get to the doctor level, the doctor doesn't really see the patient that much. And is right. it also not true that the nurses can sometimes, depending on the doctors, be afraid to go back and speak to the doctors? Oh, absolutely. 
that, I mean, that I have to admit, over 30 years of doing this, that culture has changed. Okay. Um, I still say I do get up. I mean, I'm a nurse practitioner. Um, I'm a provider. But I do, I get up if I see a doctor coming, if there's no seat and I have somewhere else I can go. I mean, yes, I get that. I, I still do that. It's, I know that's old school of me. But now the culture is you're not penalized for making an error. So it's, we want you to know you're encouraged to speak up. They call them good catches. Um, one hospital where I work is, you know, you report a good catch. Maybe uh, the patient's date of birth on the name brand, a name band didn't match up with what it should have been. But you actually get recognized for that. They'll say, hey, good job. You, your name gets put in a raffle. You get chosen. You get an eight hours of PTO time. Like it's, and that culture has, has changed and it's a whole read back and verify type thing. If I say to you, give eight units of hemolog, you're not allowed to give verbal orders anymore, by the way. It's got to go in the computer, but the nurse is supposed to, they're supposed to question everything. And I, we do a lot of texting, you know, secure message. Hey, you said to give uh, 14 of hemolog. It sounds like a really high dose. Is that, is that what you want? I'm like, yes, thank you for clarifying. You know, so the nurses, it's a different culture these days. They are supposed to ask questions and not just accept something they think is wrong. I'm following up, though, on something another person said to me on one of these episodes. So is it not possible that some doctors are terrific, but some of them are kind of ego-driven? And if I'm the patient, I'm like, look, I need insulin. And the nurse says, well, I have to talk to the doctor about it. And they say, well, go talk to the doctor about it. That the nurse may not be in the situation where like, I don't want to go talk to that guy because he is gonna, he's an asshole. And like, this isn't going to go well. And he doesn't want to be told what to do by the patient, let alone by me. And I know that's not going to happen. So I'll slow walk this and try to forget about it. Does that stuff not happen too? Oh, it does. But that's on the nurse. Like, look at your, you got to look at yourself okay. in that situation. And I'm saying, yeah, there's, there's. Lots of nurses out there. There's nurse residency programs where brand new nurses are hooked up with a mentor and they have a nice year-long orientation. But, you know, at our hospital, there's 80 nurses in that residency program right now. And you combine that with 100 uh, medical interns, you tell me. Yeah. You know, who's, yeah. who's leading who here? And people come through so, so quickly. So, So even if we, like... Even if we choose type 1 diabetes as an example and say, look, we're going to teach them, we're going to give them a crash course on type 1. It doesn't stick to them. It also leaves open about a thousand other things that they don't understand that they you don't have time to give them a crash course on. So then emergency medicine really is just, we're going to ignore everything else about you. And the thing that's got you here trying to die, we're going to try to get in front of. Sure. Yeah. That's and, and, But is there a better way, honestly? Or is that what it has to be? I don't know if there's a better way. It's what it has to be right now. They will tell you it's because they're short-staffed. You know, there's the throughput is slow, meaning patients are hanging out longer in the ER than they should. It's called they're holding in the ER, ER holds. We got 20 ER holds. So now that ER nurses are taking care of the ER holds when they really should be taking care of the ER, true ER patients who haven't triaged yet. The patients just aren't moving. Um, yeah. Why are the holds not taken upstairs? There's no room for them upstairs. There's, or there's no nurses to care for them upstairs. More so, it's because there's no, not room upstairs. There's just no beds available. So space and staffing is a problem as well. Absolutely. Okay. And it will, it will continue to be, yeah. Because mm -hmm. there's more sick people than there is hospitals? Yeah, you know, it's seasonal. You know, we're, you know, it's that time of year where things are ramping up again. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. 
better to get sick in the spring and than in the sun, than in the winter. Yeah, yeah, and some hospitals because of their staffing shortages. It may be a two hundred bed hospital, but they're only staffed for one hundred and twenty five beds. So you can hold one hundred twenty five patients, despite the fact you know the hospitals went broke paying for agency nurses. Mm. Spent you know I can't even tell you the numbers amount of money per month that they spent. Uh, they're recouping from that, so they they did what they had to do. They closed units to using the staff they have, staff the beds that they can. So no different than when I go to a restaurant and there's tables, but they don't seat me because they don't have wait staff. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see. Well, you've yeah. painted a lovely picture for us. Horrible. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry. I know. It's what these, it's what these episodes are going to be. The, uh, there are people in the medical field coming on, telling the honest truth about what they see at work. So I appreciate you doing this very much. I really do. You're welcome. I hope we squeezed it in. <laughs> no, we did terrific. We did fantastic. You, you were great. I like the mix of of talking about, you know, in the hospital, talking about, you know, in the office, talking about significantly underserved people at the same time. And you were really honest about a lot of stuff. I'll tell you the one thing that bothers me is that when we talk to people, we say, like, well, what would fix this? And you say, well, the problem is that they don't have this and they don't have that. And this isn't the way they grew up. And I'm like, okay. What then? Then there's no answer after that. Like you, people are incredibly good at pointing out why things are going wrong. Not very good at stopping them from going wrong or, or saying, look, we can't stop them from going wrong, but here's what we could do next. We seem very good as a society at saying, well, you know, that person, they, this is what happened to them. So nothing we can do, you know, like, and that is where we get to, we get to nothing we can do. And maybe that's true. And maybe it's not. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to find out if there's something more that can be done or if really it is just sometimes life is just luck of the draw. Yeah. So anyway, this is a bummer. I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hold on for me one second. If you'd like to wear the same insulin pump that Arden does, all you have to do is go to Omnipod.com slash juice box. That's it. Head over now and get started today, and you'll be wearing the same tubeless insulin pump that Arden has been wearing since she was four years old. A huge thank you to one of today's sponsors, Gvoke Glucagon. Find out more about Gvoke Hypopen at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juice box. You spell that G V O. K-E-G-L-U-C-A-G-O-N dot com forward slash juice box. Once there was a time when I just told people, if you want a low and stable A1C, just listen to the juice box podcast. But as the years went on and the podcast episodes grew, it became more and more difficult for people to listen to everyone. So I made the Diabetes Pro Tip Series. This series is with me and Jenny Smith. Jenny is a certified diabetes care and education specialist. She's also a registered and licensed dietitian and a type one herself for over 30 years. And I, of course, am the father of a child who was diagnosed at age two in 2006. The Pro Tip Series begins at episode 210 with an episode called Newly Diagnosed or Starting Over. And from there, 
all about MDI, pre-bolusing, insulin pumping, bumping and nudging, variables, exercise, illness, injury, surgeries, glucagon, long-term health, bumping and nudging, how to explain type 1 to your family, postpartum, honeymoon, transitioning, all about insulin, temp basils, these are all different episodes, setting your basal insulin, fat and protein, pregnancy, the glycemic index and load, and so much more, like female hormones and weight loss. Head now to juiceboxpodcast.com. Go up in the menu at the top and click on Diabetes Pro Tip. Or if you're in the private Facebook group, there's a list of these episodes right in the featured tab. Find out how I help keep my daughter's A1C between 5'2 and 6'2 for the last 10 years without diet restrictions. Juiceboxpodcast.com. Start listening today. It's absolutely free. If you're not already subscribed or following in your favorite audio app, please take the time now to do that. It really helps the show. And get those automatic downloads set up so you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Juicebox Podcast. The episode you just heard was professionally edited by Wrong Way Recording. WrongWayRecording.com.